Hey, real quick, this episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, real quick. In order to support the podcast, I need the help of some great advertisers, but I want to make sure those advertisers are ones that you actually want to hear about. And in order to do that, I need to learn a little bit more about you in order to bring on the right advertisers. So if you could do me a quick favor... That is, can you go to podsurvey.com slash new mindset? And there you could take a quick anonymous survey that will help me get to know you a bit better so we can bring on the right advertisers. We can bring on advertisers that you don't want to skip. So that's all. Quick favor, if you could just visit podsurvey.com slash new mindset. And once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. But that's all you have to do. It's a quick favor. It would mean a lot to me. Podsurvey.com slash new mindset. Hello and welcome to the new mindset who dis podcast. My name is Case Kenny at Case.Kenny on Instagram and this is my weekly podcast where I create short no BS episodes dedicated to helping you become the person you're meant to be, leave your comfort zone and live a purposeful and fulfilling life. Let's go. Welcome to episode 569. Hello, my friend. Welcome to a fresh new episode of New Mindset Who Dis. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting me. And today, a really, really interesting topic and one, frankly, that I've been sleeping on for for too long. It has elements of all the things I'm so passionate about talking about on the podcast, the power of brutal honesty, how to minimize regret in your life, how to not allow other people or outside circumstances to dictate your worth, and most important, how to not get distracted in life. Today, we're talking about how to overcome our addiction to distraction. Quite the provocative headline, I suppose, but in some way, we are all indeed victims to distraction. That is distraction in the sense of being pulled away from our true intentions, from our worth. That is feeling one way on the inside, wanting one thing, deserving one thing, but through distraction, whether our own or other people, doing the opposite. And I think this manifests most clearly in in productivity and to-do lists and our discipline, but it's present in our relationships, saying we want one thing, but being distracted by another in our health and fitness, in our inner lives, in our pursuit of happiness. It manifests itself in so many areas of life, and perhaps this is why I'm so passionate about mindfulness as the path forward honesty as the path forward in the way we can indeed prioritize how our life looks to us instead of how it looks to other people, how it feels to us instead of how it looks to other people. We're distracted. 
we're very distracted. And it's not just distractions like social media or too many meetings or dating apps. It's internal distractions. So big topic here. And through this topic, though, I think we can indeed take our power back. And so in that effort, today I'm bringing in my friend Nir Eyal. I've known Nir uh, for many years, and I can't believe, frankly, that we haven't done this episode before, but Nir uh, is a legend. <laughs> he really is. He's a best-selling author, and he's an expert on this topic of distraction. He wrote a best-selling book called Indistractable. Love the title as an author, which really unpacks the essence of distraction and you know, identifying it not as a hindrance to productivity, but as a barrier to a fulfilling life. And he talks a lot about in his work how to live more satisfying lives by managing our attention and controlling it, controlling it. He's been featured in New York Times, Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine, Psychology Today. He's a legend. And this is our conversation. We talked about distraction for about an hour. We touched on the power of setting intentions and standards for yourself and locking in to them, taking your power back through what we call traction. And again, this isn't an episode about productivity. This is about saying, here is how I feel, here is what I want, here is who I want, and here's how I'm going to get it. No distraction, no comparison. This is about the question, why do we know what to do, but we tend to do the opposite? Why do we sometimes ignore our best interests, or why do we ignore our worth? So really excited for you to listen to this conversation. Here it is with the one and only Nir Eyal. You know, uh, I think a great entry point for this Nir is... I think about my I think about my relationship. It's all about me. I think about my relationship with mindfulness, right? Um, I I talk a lot about how in the past I used to, I used to think that mindfulness as a subject was for other people, right? I would hear this word mindfulness, and I would think, oh, mindfulness is vibrations and chakras and you know all these things, and that's not really for me. And I would say that because I didn't really understood what mindfulness is. And of course, my relationship with mindfulness has has changed and I've realized how practical it is and how it certainly is for everyone. I bring that up because then I think about the word distraction. And I think when I have typically thought about the word distraction, I resort very quickly to thinking about, oh, um, you know, productivity and our relationship with technology and these kinds of things that I I used to think, oh, that's not really for me. You know, I just need to I just need to power through, turn my phone off. Um, you know, I just need to, I just need to just get going. I just need to hold myself accountable. And as I consumed your content and read your book, I realized that my understanding of this topic of distraction is, is a little, is, is a little misplaced. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly in the context, you know, I've heard you say that all human behavior is driven by desire to escape discomfort. And when I, when I heard you say that, and I think about distraction in the realm of, a tool that we use to escape discomfort. I'm like, oh, wow, maybe maybe this is a topic that is for everyone and isn't just about technology, our mm-hmm. phones and social media. Uh, perhaps this is a, is a subject that's way more human and way more universal. So as an entry point with that, let's talk a little bit about, let's define distraction quickly. And then I've got a bunch of questions that I, I'd love to dive into here. But yeah. as a topic, let, let's give you the floor about why distraction is a topic for everyone, not just people who think they have ADD or who yeah. you know scroll a lot. Um, if you could just open up with some general thoughts on distraction, then we can, we can hit the main point. Distraction has been around for a very long time, much longer than the internet or iPhones or whatever technology we tend to blame uh, today. And as we always have, by the way, before 
the the technology that we have today was uh, the, when I was a kid, we they used to call us couch potatoes because we watched too much television. Mm-hmm. And before that, it was uh, comic books. And before that, it was the radio. And then all the way back to the written word that Socrates used to say that this terrible new technology of the written word would enfeeble mm-hmm. men's minds. Uh, we know that Plato talked about this problem of distraction. He called it in the Greek, akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interests. And so this is an age-old problem. This is not something that's all of a sudden we're all distracted because of technology. Humans have been struggling with distraction for the, at least the past 2,500 years. And I think it's a really fascinating question when you think about it, which was, was Plato's question, why is it that despite knowing what to do, we don't do it? Why do we actively do things against our better interests? Because what we find today is that you know our, our grandparents could probably blame the fact that they didn't know what to do, right? They, they would have to go to the library and find some expert to tell them, what should I do? Our generation does not have this problem, right? If you don't know what to do, Google it. Ask ChatGPT, right? It's all there. The information is in your fingertips. The, 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 the information is there. What's not there is the ability to get out of our own way. So who can honestly tell me they don't know how to get in shape? We all know how to get in shape. You eat right and you exercise. That's it, right? We know. Who doesn't know that if you want to have better relationships, you have to be fully present with the people you love? Who doesn't know that if you want to start a business or write a book, you have to do the hard work that other people don't want to do, right? We know what to do. What we don't know is how do we stop getting in our own way? We don't know how to stop getting distracted. And if you think the world is distracting now, (laughs) just wait a few years, right? With virtual reality and augmented reality and all the crap that's happening in reality reality, the world is going to become only a more distracting place, especially when there are so many vested interests that want to distract you. The media business, whether it's social media, legacy media, television media, newspaper media, all the media wants to do is to get you to pay attention to them. That's how media works. They, even this podcast, I hate to say it, right, to your, to your loyal listeners, your job is to get people to keep listening. They're giving you the gift of their attention. So we have to learn this skill of how do we decide for ourselves how to spend our time and attention. Because if we cannot focus our time in a way that we choose and we let other people choose for us, the real cost of that, and the reason this is the skill of the century, is because What will happen invariably is that you will live a life full of regret. And that is what I'm trying to prevent. I'm not telling people what to do with their time, okay? I'm not gonna tell you to sleep more. I'm not gonna tell you to exercise. I'm not gonna tell you to eat right. I'm not gonna tell you to stop using social media. I don't care what you do. You can play video games all day long for all I care. What I wanna help you do is to do what you say you wanna do with your time and attention and with your life. So you don't look back and say, wait a minute, you know, this is what I used to do. I used to say all the time, you know, look, I had all this stuff I was supposed to do today. And then I look back, I worked all day. I was super busy. And yet I didn't mm. do the things that I said I was going to do with my time and attention. And that's a horrible feeling. Whereas today, even as it, because I am indistractable, I schedule time for the fun things too, right? I have in my, t- my calendar time with my daughter, time with my friends, time playing video games, time on social media, and I don't feel guilty about it anymore. Now I can do those things because that's exactly what I would say. So to get to your your first question of what is distraction, this is super important because I didn't understand what distraction really is, right? And so the best way to understand what distraction really is, is to understand what is the opposite of distraction. If you ask most people, what's the opposite of distraction? They'll say focus, right? I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused. But that is not the case. That is not true. If you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction, 
Of course it is, right? They're opposite, traction and distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six-letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do. Things that move you closer to your values, help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite, acts of distraction, are any actions that pull you away from what you said you were going to do, away from your goals, away from your values, away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is more than just semantics. This is super, super important because I would argue that the difference between traction and distraction is one word, and that one word is intent. As Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So what I can't stand are these professors who have you know, uh, tenure who tell us, just stop using social media. Stop checking email. It's melting your brain. Well, that's really nice for you to say. But if most people, you know, if you stop checking email, you're going to get fired. Not everybody has tenure, right? And so it's impractical advice to tell people, stop using technology. One, it's going to get them fired. Two, we don't have to. These tools are wonderful. So we need to stop moralizing and medicalizing the tools and rather saying it's about how we use them. If you want to play video games or go on social media or watch Netflix, there's nothing wrong with that. As long as you do it on your schedule, and according to your values, not someone else's, certainly not the tech companies. Conversely, and this is a big one, just because something is a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. I work with so many people who, like me, like I used to be, you know, I, I sit down at work and I would say, okay, I've got my to-do list. By the way, we can talk about why to-do lists are one of the worst things you can do for personal productivity. We can get back to that. I'd look at my to-do list and I'd say, okay, well, um, I've got all these things to do. I'm not going to get distracted by all this other stuff. Let me, let me just focus on that most important thing I have to do. Okay. That big important thing I've been delaying and procrastinating on. Here I go. I'm going to get started right now. I'm going to get to work, but first let me check some email, right? How many times has that happened? Right. You know, you have that big project you have to work on, but let me just check email for a minute. Let me just scroll that Slack channel. Let me just see what's happening in my industry news or whatever. Let me just scroll my LinkedIn channel real quick. And what we don't realize is that we let distraction trick us into prioritizing the urgent work and the easy work at the expense of the hard and important work we have to do to move our lives and careers forward. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. That's the worst kind of distraction, which is what you were saying earlier about pe people getting tricked by productivity. They say, well, look how many emails I answered. Uh, look how, look how I'm, I caught up on this or I did that. But if that's not what you said you were going to do in advance, it's a worse distraction than playing a video game because at least if you were playing a video game, you would have known you were distracted, right? But now you didn't do the thing you said you were going to do that was most important because you justified it. You let you let it trick you into thinking it was what you wanted to do and, and when it was really just another distraction. I love the distinction between distraction and traction, right? I think uh, the, the essence of that is often your life's work, like figuring out what traction looks like in your life, what is true to you, what is your actual intent, somewhat of a, uh, of a deep question there that I ponder all the time on the podcast. If mindfulness is the art of honest reflection, sharing your feelings with yourself, aligning your actions with your true feelings, intent, call it. And if that leads to traction, I guess the, the question is, you know, in the face of distraction, how do we know how do we know what traction looks like in a world where we're always comparing ourselves and we're always borrowing, right? We're, yeah. we're a copy and yeah. paste 
generation, 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 where I talk to so many people. And if I really hammer something that they say, I want this, or I'm looking for this in a relationship, and I really hammer it, usually what I get to is that they've borrowed that from someone else. And it's like 50% true, but a lot of it's not not true. So how do we how do we know what traction truly looks like? Yeah, if if a lot of it's borrowed, and likely the result may be of distraction. So kind of a a meta thing, but like, how do we know what traction truly looks like in a world where distraction perhaps is leading us in a direction that's not true to us comparison, social media, the whole thing? I'm curious your take. Super curious to hear how you'd answer it. I'll, I'll tell you my answer. So traction and distraction are actions, right? Distraction is not something that happens to you. Distraction is not my phone rang when I plan to do something or some ping, ding, and ring. That's not distraction. Distraction is an action. Traction is an action. That's why both words end in that word. What is upstream of action? Values. What are values? Values are attributes of the person you want to become. That's my personal definition. Attributes of the person you want to become. The only way, the only way, to figure out what are your values are to turn your values into time. Because there are only two ways you can figure out what someone's values are. People can talk a good game. Oh, you know, I value health. That's very, very important. Oh, I value my friendships. Oh, I value my family. Oh, I value my work. Great. There's only two ways you can actually figure out what people's values are. Not what they say, but how they spend their money and how they spend their time. Hmm. That's it. That's what your values are, how you spend your money and how you spend your time, right? And it's not up for me or anybody else to tell you what your values should be. You should come up with your values. If your values involve buying, you know, Lamborghinis and going to strip clubs, well, that's your values. I'm not going to tell you that that's wrong or any more, you know, uh, significant than somebody else's values. That's your values. What I can tell you is that you are living out your values, whether you like it or not, based on how you spend your time and money. What I think is important to not live that life of regret is to decide in advance how you will spend that time. Now, it's interesting. We spend, most people probably listening to your podcast are already pretty good with budgeting their money, right? We kind of learned that, uh, that, you know, we have to balance our, our bank statements, et cetera. And we spend so much time saving money. Think about all the people you know who clip coupons or look for deals or, you know, when you go out to lunch with them, they split the check because they're too cheap to buy you lunch once in a while. We spend so much effort on saving money but we spend almost no effort in terms of thinking about how we spend our time, right? We just give our time away. It's like 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 handing out dollar bills to everyone we that that we meet, right? Oh, look at this thing that happened in the news 5,000 miles away. I got to worry about that. Look at this problem that 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 uh, somebody that I don't even know is having. Uh, look look at uh you know every everything that's in the news or or at work or this or that or this, this my children's needs, my my parents needs, all these need all these stressors in our lives. And we give our time away. Not that we shouldn't give our time away, but that we're very, uh, very um, liberal about how we give our time away. While we're very cheap with our money. And I think it should be exactly the opposite. Because money is a renewable resource. You can always make more money. For as long as you live, you can always find a way to make more money. Agreed? But you cannot make more time. I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. doesn't matter how much money you have. You cannot make more time. Everybody gets the same 24 hours in a day. So we need to flip the script. We need to be cheap with our time and generous with our money. And to do that, we have to, just like we would plan a budget for how we spend our money, right? We need to spend, we need to, to understand how we spend our time. And that's something, by the way, it's interesting. Uh, if you look at the world's richest people, like if you look at Elon Musk, if you look at uh, Mark Andreessen, if you look at these people who don't 
care how they spend their money because they have so much they'll never be able to spend it. What's interesting across the board with these high performance individuals, they are very stingy with their time, very stingy with their time. And so we need to adopt those practices, just like we might want to adopt their practices for how they got so successful in business by figuring out how they made all that money. We need to learn from them how they spend their time. So when you look at Elon Musk's calendar, when you look at Mark Andreessen's calendar, it is time boxed. And that's the technique that I teach in Indistractable, meaning you sit down in advance and you turn your values into time. How do you do that? I mentioned that earlier. You look at your values and you say, okay, what are my values? Well, there's three life domains. The first life domain is you. You're the center of your life domains. If you can't take care of yourself, can't take care of other people, you can't make the world a better place. So you have to sit down, look at your blank calendar for the week ahead and ask yourself, by the way, I skipped one little part here. Remember, you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. This is super important. You have no right to say you got distracted by something unless you can show me what it was you got distracted from. Makes sense, right? You, you, what did you? If you didn't decide in advance what you were going to do with your time, what exactly did you get distracted from? Nothing, because you didn't plan anything. So what we've got to do is look at that white space that we have every week, right? We look at our calendar, we, that God-given time of seven days of the week that we have in the week ahead. And we say to ourselves, okay, how would the person I want to become spend time taking care of themselves, right? So let's say um, uh, health and wellness is important to you. I'm not saying it has to be, but if it is important to you, do you have time for proper rest? We all know how important sleep is. We don't need to read yet another book about how important sleep is. We know. But do we have time in our calendars for that? My, my, I used to yell at my daughter, not yell at her, but I used to highly encourage her to get to bed on time, right? You have a bedtime. And then one day she turns to me and said, Daddy, do you have a bedtime? She was absolutely right because I was being a hypocrite. I didn't have a bedtime. Now I have a bedtime. <laughs> uh, time for, for exercise, time for meditation, time for prayer, time for reading, right? How many of us say, oh, being someone who reads books is important. That's the kind of person I'd want to become. Do you have time in your day for reading or is it just an aspiration? Time for video games, time for Netflix, time for social media, all fine, but it's got to be in your calendar. So that's the first life domain is you. Then your relationships. Part of the reason we have an epidemic of loneliness in the industrialized world is because those regular time periods we used to have when society was less secular, and I'm secular myself, but we have lost something very significant in the fact that we don't have the church groups on Sunday, that we don't have the bowling league on Thursdays, that we don't have Kiwanis Club on Tuesdays. Our grandparents used to have that in their calendars. We need to bring that back, right? Well, you need to schedule time for your friendships. How many times have we heard, oh, we'll get coffee sometime? BS, right? Let's see if it happens. It's gotta be in your schedule. Don't just give your partner, your kids, your family, whatever scraps of time are left over. If they're important to you, if it's part of your values to be a good husband, a good father, a good partner, put it in your schedule to, to spend time with those people. And then finally, with your work domain. So work is, you know, if people schedule anything, they schedule work. The problem is they only schedule uh, one type of work. They schedule what's called reactive work right? Reacting to those meetings, reacting to those messages, those notifications, reacting to the, you know, whatever comes up during the day, that's called reactive work. And it's part of everyone's day. What many people, most people fail to do is schedule time for reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction. Planning, strategizing, thinking, for God's sakes, requires us to do so without distraction. And if you don't plan that time, to do work without distraction, that reflective work time, I promise you, you're gonna run real fast in the wrong direction. So what you will have as a result of this process of turning your values into time, you will be forced to make trade-offs. And this gets to your question of how do you get people to really know what's important to them, how they should spend their time. 
is because only with a time box calendar, as opposed to a to-do list, to-do lists are endless, right? The problem with to-do lists is that you can always add more. I want to write a book and I want to start a business and I want to be an influencer and I want to start a podcast and I want to have kids and all these, all these wants, but it's limitless as opposed to a time box calendar forces you to start making some trade-offs. And so even if your dreams and aspirations, you know, we're memetic creatures, as just as you said, we, we copy others all the time. But what you're forcing yourself to do is to figure out what's really important. How important is it to me to be an Instagram influencer versus spending time with my wife or my, my family, right? I'm forced to make those kind of trade-offs because right. there's a limiting factor of 24 hours in a day. And it's only by doing that that you can actually figure out what your values are and live according to those values so that you can look at your schedule in the day and say, okay, here's what I plan to do. And I did it. And let me tell you, very few people on earth have experienced, I'm not exaggerating here, the bliss, the utter joy that comes from saying, I live today the way I said I would, right? It's something very few people experience, even to the point where, you know, so many of us, because we keep these to-do lists that are wrecking our productivity, in fact, even when we have some leisure time, we just want to relax, be with our family, watch some Netflix. We feel guilty about it because hmm. we get so much other stuff we should be doing. Whereas a, a person who, who is indistractable, when they have time on their schedule to watch Netflix, play a video game, be with their family, whatever it is, it's guilt-free. It's right. pure bliss. It's pure freedom because that's exactly what they said they would do and anything else becomes a distraction. Yeah, this is, this is really resonating with me. Um, and I want to get into some of the, the practical elements here, but uh, I really like this because it's really emblematic of how I think about mindfulness, right? This is mindfulness podcast. Mindfulness is being honest with yourself, but that, that's not enough. Like mindfulness in a vacuum, oh, I'm, I'm aware, I'm honest. Like it means nothing unless your actions follow. So, I mean, this right. is essentially what we're, we're talking about here. It's about practical. We're getting real with ourselves of right. do the actions exactly. actually align with what we say, right? It's fantastic. I love it. You've said a couple times that, you know, the idea of traction versus distraction, the idea of handling evolving distraction is to, you know, essentially minimize regret in your life. So you don't look back and realize you never, you know, you never throttled your traction. You were always distracted in some way. You know, I'm a I'm a fan of the the zoomed out questions, I think. And, and you're talking a lot about time, right? Time as, as your greatest asset. You know, I think a lot about human nature and human behavior. And one of the topics that I talk a lot about on the podcast is allowing yourself to reinvent yourself, allowing yourself to start over. If you've found yourself down a path that you invested a lot of time and effort and energy and relationships into, but ultimately it's not aligning, call it traction, giving yourself the gift of starting over. I find ourselves really resistant to starting over because we see investment in time in the past as something that if we start over, we're throwing that all away. ROI goes to zero. So I'm curious your, your thoughts on like, how can we allow ourselves to, to start over in the context of, you know, traction being the idea of finding what's true to you and investing in that and focusing on that. And I think sometimes we turn that into, you know, busyness as a badge of as a badge that we wear right. and that we've invested time into start over would be the distraction, whereas starting over would be likely what leads to traction. Could be. So yeah. I, I'm curious your thoughts on like how, how can we distinguish between what should we invest in right traction, but also allowing ourselves to start over so we don't go, go down this path where it's like, well, you know, for instance, we've dated for, for four years like, to start over now is worthless or I put so much time into this career. Right. I can't start over now. I'm curious your thoughts there. 
Sure, sure. So this is called the endowed progress effect. Uh, and so what happens is when we invest in something, it becomes more valuable over time. Uh, and, and sometimes to our own detriment, right? That we, we like something more when we feel like we've put effort into it, we invested in it. Uh, and the beauty of this technique is that you rewrite your schedule as often as you want, as long as it's not in the day. So what I do, I, most people, I would say 80% of the people I've worked with, uh, they have visibility into their week, right? About a week's time, you know, five days of the work week, they pretty much know how it's going to go. And so what I advise folks, what I do myself is you take a few minutes. For me, it's Sunday evenings at 8 p.m. I sit down, maybe it takes me 10 minutes, and I look at my week ahead. And I say, okay, for those three life domains, you, your relationships, and your work, have I distributed my time for the week ahead in a way that helps me become the person I want to become? Am I spending my limited time on earth, this, this limited time I have for the week ahead, the way I want to? So that if I lived my schedule, I would say no regrets. That's exactly what I do. That's how much time I want to spend with my friends. That's how much time I want to spend working. That's how much time I want to spend with my kid, except whatever it is, that is exactly the way I want it to be. Now you can change that as frequently as you want. You want to do it every morning? You want to do it the night before? Fine. But don't change it once you've set it. Right? If you change it in the moment, it doesn't work. <laughs> you have to decide that you're going to set the schedule and follow it as, as, as close as you can. Now, of course, you're going to fall off track here, there, and then you just pick up wherever you left off and whatever the calendar says to do, that's what you work on. So it's built into the mechanism. Now, back to the mindfulness question, because we skipped over it. So what we've been describing in terms of make time for traction, turning your values into time, that's step two. <laughs> we skipped over step one. And, and, and this is super, super important. Okay. So remember how we talked about traction and distraction, right? What prompts these actions? What prompts these actions are triggers. And we have two kinds of triggers. The triggers that everybody thinks about when they think about distraction, they think about the pings, the dings, the rings, all this stuff outside of us. These are called external triggers, right? The pings, dings, and rings. Studies find that those only account for about 10% of our distractions. So 10% of the time that you check your phone, are you checking it because of some beep, boop, or you know, some ping, ding, or ring? That's only 10% of the time. So what's the other 90%? Turns out that 90% of the time that we get distracted, 90% of the time we check our phones, it's not because of what's happening outside of us. It's not the external trigger, but rather it is the internal trigger. The internal trigger. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety, stress. This is the source of 90% of distractions because distraction... It's not a moral failing. There's nothing broken about you. It's simply an emotion regulation problem. We have not learned, nobody ever taught us how to effectively handle these uncomfortable emotional states. Now, one technique is mindfulness, right? Mind, uh, 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 Mindfulness-based based stress response, as done by uh, John Kabat-Zinn, can be very effective. Acceptance and commitment therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, lots and lots of different techniques basically doing the same thing, which is acknowledging that all human motivation, all human action is driven by one thing. We used to think that motivation is about carrots and sticks, right? We know that's no longer true. That if you look at the human brain, the reason we do anything and everything is for one reason only, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. Even, even wanting to feel good. You say, well, don't, what about when people want rewards, right? Aren't we motivated to seek rewards? But in fact, seeking wanting, craving, lusting, desiring, hungering is itself psychologically destabilizing. The brain doesn't get us to do what feels good. The brain gets us to do what felt good. 
And so the carrot is the stick. The carrot is the stick, right? It is the reward, the pursuit of the reward that makes us psychologically destabilized enough to go get it, to want it, to crave it. That is psychologically uncomfortable. So what that means, the reason this is so profound is that if all human behavior is about a desire to escape discomfort, that must therefore mean that time management is pain management. Weight management is pain management. Money management is pain management because all human behavior is about pain management. So it's not a psych, it's not some kind of flaw of character, right? Being bad at time management doesn't mean you're subhuman or you're not good enough. It's just that you haven't learned how to deal with discomfort. And so step number one is about mastering those internal triggers before they become your masters. You have to have tools ready to go, right? Tools in your toolkit that when you say, oh, I know I should be working on this big project, but yeah, I really wanna go check social media for a minute or let me just look at email or do whatever it is that distracts me or have that piece of chocolate cake or smoke that cigarette, that you have a tool ready to go that you can use on the spot that helps you deal with that discomfort in a healthy way. What we see high performers in every industry, sports, the arts, business, these people at the top of their game, they feel the same internal triggers you and I do, sometimes very intensely, right? When you think about all the stories of, of people who had abuse in their background, right? Famous people who were abused as children, they are carrying around a lot of trauma, a lot of these internal triggers of insecurity and inferiority and stress and anxiety, but they use it differently. Distractible people, every time they feel anxiety, every time they feel stress, every time they feel lonely, they look for escape. Let me find a drink. Let me find my phone. Let me find the remote control. I need to get out of this sensation. What successful people do, what indistractable people do is that they use that very same sensation as rocket fuel to propel them towards traction rather than trying to escape it with distraction. So it's simply about learning to harness that discomfort in a healthy way that serves you rather than hurts you. Yeah, I, uh, I love that for one, the distinction between external and internal. Would you say, um, thinking about comparison, right? This is something that we do all day, every day, particularly with you know Gen Z, younger generations of social media fueling this unfair self-judgment, unfair comparison, rushing the whole thing. Um, I think if, so, if I were to ask someone, talk to me about comparison in your life, I think most people would say like that's an external trigger because they, they think about where comparison comes from. And it's, you know, it's likely a, a visual thing, social media, seeing these people, hearing things, pressure from parents, generations, things like that. Talk to me about comparison, uh, comparing yourself to other people in the context of distraction. You know, I'm sure you would say it's an internal trigger, not an external one. Um, but any any tactics, strategies in the realm of of distraction when it comes to comparing yourself to sure. other people and how that, that just causes many people to just unravel. Yeah, I mean, so so much here to unpack. I mean, I love that quote that says, "Comparison is the thief of joy," and that the problem with mankind is not greed. Greed is not inherently bad. Uh, the problem is comparison. That's what's bad. When we covet, right? It's in, it's in the Ten Commandments. Don't covet the, the neighbor's wife. It's this comparison that that that's the problem. It's coveting what someone else has. Uh, do you know that that monkey cucumber experiment? Have you ever heard of this one? No. So a, tell one, me. My my favorite primate study ever was conducted at the Yerkes Center. Uh, Franz de Waal did this wonderful study, and he took two capuchin monkeys. Okay, two monkeys, two cages side by side. The monkeys can see each other, and he trains them to give him 
a, a little pebble that's in both the monkey's cages. They have this little stack of pebbles in the monkey's cage. And he trains them to give him a pebble in exchange for a cucumber. Okay, Mon these monkeys love cucumbers. So give me a pebble, get a cucumber. Give me a pebble, give, give me a, get a cucumber. Okay, very, very good. Then the researcher offers one of the monkeys a beautiful, sweet, purple grape. And the other monkey can see that that guy's getting the grape, okay? Gets the grape, gives, a, gives one of the pebbles, and then the researcher offers the monkey that didn't get the grape, offers them a cucumber, which just seconds ago, that monkey was incredibly happy to, to do that exercise, right? But now the monkey takes the cucumber, looks at it, throws it at the researcher's face, starts pounding on the cages uh, on its cage, starts screeching, baring its teeth. This monkey is pissed off. Right? Seconds ago, very happy with the cucumber. Now will not accept the cucumber no matter what. Why? Is he any worse off? No. But that schmuck got the, the got the grape and I didn't. Then this explains the human condition in a nutshell. Right? We don't care that this is the safest, most democratic most uh, uh, cleanest, most educated time to ever be alive in human history. I mean, if you are listening to this podcast on your magical smartphone device, which a generation ago people would thought is crazy, would, would be science fiction that you have today, and you were lucky enough to get vaccinated as a child and you have no parasites, you should be dancing in the streets every single day that you live today, right? Because you live better than royalty did as, 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 as much as 200 years ago all the way back to 200,000 years ago. We live better than any royalty ever did, even if you're not rich, right? But we quickly forget that because everybody that we know is at our level or, or higher. And so that's all we look at. We just compare ourselves upward. We don't look downwards, right? We only think about what the person above us has. And this is just stupid, <laughs> especially <laughs> if, especially, I mean, we're being monkeys. We're literally being monkeys which we all are, of course, we're all primates, but we're giving in to, we, we, you know, those primates, you can talk to them all day around why they should, you know, why comparison is the thief of joy and they won't get it, but humans will get it. And so what we have to do is snap out of these stupid values, right? By, by first of all, trying them. What I suggest for people, you know, I don't want to judge what your values are. I know what my values are because they're on our calendar. They're, they're on my calendar. But mm -hmm. when you go out, when, when you try for those values, when you actually put in your schedule, uh, I want to have the biggest social media following. Okay. Okay. Well, how are you going to get that? I'm going to devote three hours in my day, which means I have three hours left to uh, three hours less to spend reading a book or praying or being with my family members. Is that worth it? Maybe for some people it is, but for some people it's not. And for the people who it's not, you don't have to do it. Now it's not an aspiration anymore. Now I don't, I don't care, right? Because I have no time devoted for it. So how could I possibly get it? Now, if it's really important to me, I will pursue it. But if it's not in my calendar, if I'm not willing to spend time or money on it, I don't care. I can let that go. And clearly, it's not one of my values. And so that's why that becomes the test. It's not that you, you don't want these things, right? You, remember, you can have everything you want. You can have everything you dream of. You just can't have it all at once. And that's the mistake people will make. They want to be a great parent at the same time as they start a business, at the same time as they write a novel, at the same time they're a social media influencer, all at the same time. They can't do it all at once. But if you budget time for it, you can have it, just not all at the same time.
Hey, real quick, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And you know, if you're like me, you're always wishing for more time in life, right? Like, I wish I had more time. I wish I had more time to do blank. I wish, I wish, I wish. And as much as practically having a couple more hours in a day would be cool, a bit more time to do what we love instead of jobs and responsibilities, it begs the question, what would we do with that time? Not just wishful, I want more time, but for what? What would I do with that time? What really matters to me? What brings me joy? What enhances my life instead of just filling time and space with? Well, to answer that question, I think therapy can help. Therapy can help you find what matters so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash New Mindset today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash New Mindset. Hey, real quick, this episode is sponsored by Hero Bread. And something I'm into lately, as simple as it sounds, is toast. A nice toasted piece of bread, so simple, maybe some butter, maybe some jam, but just toast. It's the best. But as someone who is making an effort to invest in my health and fitness and diet, the carb fear is real. And the result is I don't get to enjoy a nice piece of toast as often or as guilt-free as I'd like. So I'm definitely grateful for Hero Bread. Their bread options have zero to one grams of net carbs, zero grams sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's got the same soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a BLT or a burrito or a burger or toast. And they were kind enough to send me some loaves, and I can attest to it being the same experience I crave, but now guilt-free. They also sent me some tortillas, which are great. They have bread loaves, buns, biscuits, tortillas, anything to match your bread cravings. So don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code newmindset at checkout. That's newmindset at h-e-r-o dot c-o. Yeah, I like this as a practical approach. I've always found a lot of wellness and mindfulness and like all the hoopla about stoicism, for instance, to like really make, you know, to diminish our emotions. And, you know, we can have all these things. There's a practical approach to these things. It's a matter of prioritization. It's a matter of honesty and actions as opposed to this, you know, suppress this discipline over everything. Of course, that's accurate, but it's about prioritization. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, this is a random question I thought of uh, labels, like the labels we give ourselves. Right. Mm. So you know, I, I've heard hear a lot of people say, well, you know, something to the tune of, well, that's just the way I am. Or my favorite, mm. I have an addictive personality. So, yeah. right. We, we have these labels that we use as rationale for why we do certain behavior or the most ridiculous one is I'm an Aries or I'm a Scorpio. <laughs> therefore, like <laughs> oh. I, I'm, curious, I'm curious what your thoughts on that are. In oh, generation. you know what my thoughts are on that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure you, you have a thought, but I, I'm curious about the way that labels work, right? If we yeah. t think about like mimetic theory and Rene Girard and all that stuff, that's great for as far as like why we want certain things and, um, you know, rationale behind, you know, incentives for behavior and, and wants and desires. But, you know, uh, identities are also interesting as well as like where we're getting these identities from and how we yeah. truly believe that they're set in stone because there's a word behind them. And yeah. especially when we like therapize words or like medicalize words like addictive and things like that. So I just give you the floor in reaction right. to, to that. 
So it's 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 uh it's like fire. It, you can use it. it. It's incredibly destructive, right? Fire can burn down buildings. It can destroy lives. It can kill people. It can also be used to to very powerful effect, right? We can use fire to to make electricity. We can use it to to, to build civilizations, right? right? So it's about how we use labels. The thing is, most people don't think about labels, at least not in a conscious manner, and how how dangerous, if not deadly, they can be. I'll, I'll give you some examples. So. A few years ago, there was a term uh, that was passing through the psychology community that kind of made it out of the psychology community into the mainstream press. And this term was ego depletion. Ego depletion was this idea that willpower is a depletable resource, that you run out of willpower, just like you would run out of battery charge on your phone, right? Or gas in a gas tank, that you run out of willpower. At the time, uh, I didn't know this term, but I definitely acted like I, I knew it. You know, I would come home from work after a long day and I'd say, oh man, I'm quote unquote spent, right? Give me that pint of Ben and Jerry's. I'm going to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. I can't make any more good decisions. I'm spent, right? And so people love this idea of ego depletion because it seemed to prove that, yeah, we really do run out of, of willpower like gas in a gas tank. And so it would justify such behaviors. And, and, you know, there's all kinds of kind of wacky claims made about it that you could, you could juice your ego depletion by like drinking sugar and lemon. Anyway, there's all kinds of these crazy studies done by just one researcher, by the way. And so what happens in the social sciences when a study sounds too good to be true, what do we do? We replicate the study. We run it again and we see if it replicates. And so turns out after many attempts, this idea that we run out of willpower just doesn't look like it's true. We can't replicate the studies that were first done. It it just mm. it seems like it doesn't exist. Willpower is not a depletable resource, except except with one group of people. There is one group of people who really do experience ego depletion. They really do run out of willpower as if it's charge on a battery. Who are those people? People who believe that willpower is a depletable resource. So if you believe that that's true, it is absolutely true. And so when you ask me about labels and you hear people tossing around stupid crap, like, uh, you know, I have an addictive personality or uh, I'm no good at time management or I'm a Sagittarius and Jupiter is in retrograde and therefore blah, 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 blah. What you are essentially doing is what Henry Ford said, whether you believe you can or you cannot, you're right. So we need to be very, very careful. I mean, like think about the term addiction, right? This word gets thrown around around everything, right? If, if a video game is good, it's addictive. If social media is good, it's addictive. If a television show, it's addictive. Like everything's addictive. I bought a bag of, of, of uh, pretzels the other day. It's a dangerous, addictive content inside. Pretzels, y'all, it's pretzels, okay? Like <laughs> a, an addiction, the word addictio comes from the word slave in Latin, right? We're not being slaves to this stuff, okay? We're, we're not, th th these, these, these distractions, they're not stealing our attention. We're giving it away, right? They're not addictions. If anything, they are just distractions. But when we use this terminology and we say, oh, there's nothing I can do about it, right? I'm addicted, right? My kids, they won't stop playing video games. They're addicted. We are perpetuating exactly, ironically, what these tech companies and media companies want. They want us to believe we're powerless because what does that lead to? When someone believes there's nothing to be done, what do they do? Nothing. It's called learned helplessness. And But for many of us, that's very comforting. We want to think, oh, I have this label, and that makes it all right for me to, to not have any personal responsibility because that's who I am, right? My brain is just this way. And I think that's very, very dangerous. Now, how do you, I told you it was also very powerful. How do you make it 
work for you as opposed to against you. So the reason my book is titled Indistractable, it's a made up word, I made it up. Indistractable is meant to sound like indestructible. It's something that you can use to define yourself because there's a lot of research that comes out of the psychology of religion that when people label themselves a certain way, they are much more likely to act in accordance to that identity. So there's a, a, a stupid joke that goes, you know, how do you know someone's vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you, right? Uh, and by the way, if you're offended with that, I understand. Just substitute, you know, whatever group has some crazy, you know, how do you know someone's keto? Oh, they'll tell you. Okay, same, same joke applies. Because when you have an identity, a moniker that you can identify with, much of the decision making has been offloaded. So a vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I wonder if I'll have a ham sandwich for breakfast, right? Or a bacon for breakfast. They don't eat meat. It's who they are. A Muslim doesn't say, oh, I wonder if I'll have a cold beer when I get home from work. No, devout Muslims don't drink alcohol. It's who they are. So we can start defining ourselves by saying we are indistractable. That's who I am. I I'm sorry. I don't return every you know text message or WhatsApp message every 30 seconds. I'm indistractable. Or you know what? I'm really sorry. Hey, if we're going to have lunch together, just like you know our parents' generation, when, when my dad stopped smoking and somebody went to lunch with him and started lighting up a cigarette, he said, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. Would you mind smoking outside? I'm really trying to quit. I'm a non-smoker. That's what he would tell people. I'm a non-smoker. So, and, and today, everybody respects that. Well, I think we need to bring this for distraction as well. Like if we're going to have lunch together, Case, you know, I expect we're going to have lunch and be there fully present, both in body and mind. Would you mind putting away your phone? Can we have a, a conversation without our devices present? Why? Oh, I'm indistractable. So that's how we can use it to our advantage. Yeah. Uh, amen. I think that's so powerful. And yeah, one of my, you know, favorite things to do is... I do a lot of these guided journaling sessions where we'll, we'll journal live together. And a lot of it's around reformatting our, our identities, at least the words that we use to describe ourselves. Like I'm really at war, for instance, with with adjectives that are mm. adjectives on their own to like sit there and say, like, I want to be a happy person, I think is, is a very slippery slope because, of course, we're not going to be a happy person. And the more we're unhappy, we start to think that we're an unhappy person and so on and so forth. I really encourage people to come back to a lot of the the tenets of like habit formation. I'm the kind of person who yeah. verb statement things that you can control. I'm sure you agree with this. This is you know formulating your idea of traction. Um, so I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of that. And everything you're you're saying really resonates around identity. Um, I want to I, I want to talk about relationships in a second. But before that, one of the things that I keep seeing on social media is this idea of dopamine fast, oh, God. Uh, dopamine fasting, whatever. <laughs> is that is that legit? Or are no. are we just TikToking ourselves. Oh, it's so stupid um, because okay. <laughs> it's so dumb. Um, one, because people don't understand dopamine is involved with literally everything. And so it's it's really silly because, you know, when you give someone a hug, you release dopamine. When you learn to play tennis, you, you, you release dopamine. Like dopamine, people think dopamine is like cocaine in the brain. They're, oh my God, social media, you used it. And now your brain is floating in dopamine. Like the amount of dopamine that's released uh, when you play a video game or go on social media compared to what's released uh, when, you, when someone takes a bump of cocaine or amphetamine, it's not even close. It's thousands of times more. It's not even the same range, right? Like uh, not even close, obviously. Uh, but we like, again, we like this victim mentality. We want to believe that there is some puppet master that's doing this to us. Why? Because then the strings are not in our control. There's nothing we can do. We can just right. blame Mark Zuckerberg. Right. It's his fault. And of course, that's that's silly. Of course, there's so much you can do. The freaking phones come pre-installed with methods 
for you to use that will turn the phone off at certain times of day, that will use do not disturb, that will turn on, you know, access, uh, limit your time that you can spend on certain applications automatically. <laughs> we just have to use it. How many other products can you think of that are built in with ways for you to use them less, right? I can't think of any, right? Because the companies no. know that this makes the devices better. Uh, and they're all doing it, right? Whether it's Apple device, a Google device, they all have these features built in to help us use them less uh, if, and more responsibly. But this idea of dopamine fasting, um, you know, if it, if it, I'm not going to argue with something that works for you. If it works for you, great. I think the risk is when self-help goes wrong. You know, the, the, uh, Nassim Taleb has this concept of skin in the game. And the problem with a lot of self-help advice out there is it's easy to make the bullshit uh, but then you, nobody ever reels it back in. Nobody ever goes out there and says, oops, I made a mistake. Please don't do that anymore. And I think there's many things in the self-help realm that are really potentially dangerous. So because when they don't work, who is to blame, right? I'll give you a, a great example. Okay, habits, all right? I write about habits. Both my books are about habits. I've been studying habits for 15 years now. I'm all about habits. But people are misusing this idea of habits. When someone says, I want to form a habit around something, what they're really telling you is, I want to have done that thing. Okay. I hate exercise, but I'm going to form a habit, an exercise habit so that I will have exercise. I want to write a book, but I hate writing. So I'm going to start a writing habit. I, I don't really like meditating, but I'm going to start a meditation habit and then I won't have, it won't seem so hard. Like I can push some magic autopilot button and it'll suddenly happen on its own. But people don't understand what is a habit. What is the definition of a habit? The definition of a habit is the impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. Okay, I've written thousands of articles, two best-selling books, sold a million copies. I don't know how to write out of a habit. How do you write with little or no conscious thought? I, I've meditated. I meditated for 365 days. Every single day I meditated. If you are meditating with little or no conscious thought, you're asleep. You're doing it wrong. There's no such thing as a meditation habit because you can't do it with little or no conscious thought. The whole point of meditation is to bring conscious awareness to your experience. <laughs> so we're using these terms incorrectly. So, well, whatever, potato, potato. No, it really matters. Why? Because when people believe this, these techniques and they don't fully understand what they're doing, do they go back to the guru who taught them to the technique, to the book where they read this technique? No, they blame themselves. They think, oh, I did it wrong. Look, I've been doing this thing for 66 days or whatever magic number somebody tells them. There is no magic number, by the way. And look, the habit hasn't taken hold, right? I did this dopamine fast and now I don't feel any better. I still want to use my phone a lot, right? Because nobody's there to go back and say, you know, return to center. This didn't work. So who do people blame? They blame themselves. They think I'm broken. I'm wrong. Well, you're not broken. You're not wrong. It's a stupid technique you use that didn't work. Right. And so that's why right. it's super important to me, you know, with my books, not only do I know the techniques work because I use every single one of them in my own life, but that's not good enough. This isn't just an autobiography. There are 30 pages of citations to peer reviewed journals. Like I want to see the research <laughs> and it's got to be good research or I'm not going to recommend people do it. Speaking of strategies that you advocate for, I've heard you say uh, schedule time for worry. Um, I'm curious what that means in the realm of, you know, elevating your conscious thoughts, yeah. not ignoring them, not suppressing them, but, you know, uh, addressing them head on. What does it, what does it mean to schedule time for worry? That, that seems very rigid. I'm curious yeah. what that, what that means. So you don't have to believe everything you think. This is, this is, this is most people's problems, mine included, uh, in a nutshell. You don't have to believe everything you think that we think that somehow if we hear that voice in our head, 
that everybody has it, not just schizophrenics. Everybody has that little consciousness in their head that they can hear talking to themselves, judging themselves, saying things that you probably wouldn't say to your best friend uh, or your worst enemy, but somehow you say to yourself all the time, right? All the insecurities and all the things that you doubt about yourself. You say that in your head all day. Nobody says you have to believe in it. That is not your soul talking. Most people think that's your soul. It's not your soul. It's just psychic chatter. It's noise. And so, and, and, and so getting comfortable with that, understanding that that is just for you to choose what you're going to do with it, uh, is, is, is incredibly important. Remind me again, sorry, I, th- I think I took it in a slightly different direction. What was the question again? Schedule time for worry. Right. Scheduling worry. Thank you so much. So what that does now, okay, so the reason I say schedule time for worry is because when you start worrying, when you start ruminating, if you don't have an outlet for that rumination to go somewhere, it's going to keep cycling and cycling and cycling. For example, and this is, by the way, this goes back to the conversation around labels and why that's so dangerous. Uh, the reason I'm so against the over-medicalization of, of so many terms today, uh, so many, you know, every day there's a new syndrome, there's a new something that, that people are diagnosed with that, that, they, that they think they're somehow, you know, neurodivergent upon, and, and most of it is, is complete malarkey, uh, is because when you become more sensitized to that, right? If I said, uh, hey, Case, every time, uh, can you name how many red cars you saw in the past 24 hours? Can you name how many red cars you saw? No. But if I say, hey, every time you see a red car tomorrow, I'm going to give you a hundred bucks. Are you going to, you're going to tell me how many red cars you saw? Hell yeah, you will. Right. Because yeah. you're going to become more sensitized to it. You're going to be looking out for it. And so when we ruminate, when we constantly carry these, these ideas with us in our head, that something might be wrong with us, that, uh, that there's some kind of problem that we need to deal with, and we don't schedule the time to worry about it, we keep our, our brain constantly surfaces it. It constantly makes it more salient to us, as opposed to what we do. Okay, and I'll prove it to you here. I have it right here on my desk. I have in my drawer at all times this amazing technology of a pen and a piece of paper. And so whenever I have one of these worries, one of these doubts, one of these concerns, one of these things that before I wrote Indistractable, I would immediately act upon because I thought, oh, the voice in my head says it's important. I must act upon it right now. I don't do that anymore. I take my pen and I write out that thing that's on my mind, that bit of worry. And you know what's amazing? I stop thinking about it because now it's here. My brain doesn't have to constantly uh, work to make sure I don't forget that thing. Because it's right here on the piece of paper. Now, what is that? What happens to that piece of paper? I have time in my day, literally time boxed, for worry time, and that's my time to take that piece of paper and say, "Okay, what was it that I was worrying about? Oh yeah, that thing. Oh, that's actually not that important anymore. Or what about that thing? Oh, okay, that I should probably spend some time thinking about." So I've been able. I let my brain relax and not ha- not need it to constantly ruminate on something because it's on the paper and it knows my brain can now relax, knowing there will be a time and a place for it. It's scheduled for you know 5 p.m. That's my worry time. I've got an hour to work through all those little worries and concerns. Uh, such a, a great uh, advocation, of course, for journaling, for one, mm. um, both in, in the sense of unburdening yourself of these thoughts to kind of let your, your brain rest and then, and then you know, working through them. Is there, is there psychology behind the idea of writing it down and like unburdening your brain so it doesn't have to try to remember it and in that sense over ruminate is is there any you know yeah. psychology research behind right that? it's called the zagarnik effect uh so he saw this when uh he noticed that um uh that that when waiters would take an order they uh, could yeah. remember that order uh up until the time when the order was delivered but if you ask them 10 minutes after the order was delivered hey what was table number four's order they'd have no idea 
And so what he what Zakarnik found was that uh, if the if the if if the task wasn't done, if the loop wasn't completed, if the bow wasn't tied, that 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 person would keep ruminating and ruminating and ruminating about it. But when it was completed, then they could let the memory go. So that's the evidence for this technique of get it out of your brain, get it on a piece of paper, and have a time to come back to it later. I love that. Um, thank you for sharing that. Let's uh, let's talk about relationships real quick because I talk a lot about relationships on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Every every different way to slice and dice the the various points of of distraction uh, in relationships. Let's. I'll just give you the floor. Like, talk a little bit about the the role that distraction plays in in healthy relationships of any kind. It could be romantic, business, mm. friendship, so on and so forth. Um, I'll just give you the the floor there. How are we distracting ourselves in relationships, and any techniques to to bring us in to be more present and honest? Yeah, well, I, I'd be happy to to hear any specific application. But I'll tell you, in my relationship, and we've been talking here uh, for almost an hour, and and we've known each other for years, so I can get a little personal with you and your listeners. I mean, I'll tell you, uh, I've been married now for twenty. 20- three years and uh, a few years ago um, when my when I was writing indistractable um, I noticed that my wife and I uh, were having less sex uh, that we just weren't ha- we're having less time to be intimate together and the reason why a major reason why is that we were going to bed later and later and the reason that was happening was because every night mm. we would go to bed and she'd spend you know half an hour an hour fondling her iPad and I would be caressing my iPhone and we weren't being intimate with each other. And so yeah. what we did, uh, I was doing this research for my book, and I decided to practice what I preached to, to start using some of these techniques. And so what did, I, what did I do? I went to the hardware store, and I bought us this outlet timer. Now, this outlet timer plugs into the wall, and it will turn on or off whatever you plug into it at whatever time of day or night you set. So in my household, every night at 10 p.m., the internet shuts off automatically. No more internet. Now, could I turn the internet back on? Of course I could. I could go under my desk. I could unplug, replug. I could try and tether through my phone. I, there's all kinds of things I could do, right? But what I now, what this stops us from doing is this mindless behavior of emailing and scrolling and checking and whatever, knowing that, hey, the internet shuts off at 10 p.m. Is this really what you want to be doing with your time, right? It's a bit of mindfulness as opposed to mindlessly continuing to scroll. Now, that's what's called an effort pact. It's a bit of work, a bit of effort mm. in between you and the distraction. And you can use that in, in all kinds of different consequent, uh, uh, applications to make sure that there's that, that temporary pause. Now, we've been doing this now for, what, five years? To be honest, we don't even need it anymore because everyone in my household, my daughter, my wife, myself, we all know 10 p.m. the internet's going to shut off. So we actually don't even need it anymore. But it sets that precedent to know, okay, that's the time to shut off. And I, I'm very happy to report we have a much better relationship and a much healthier yeah. sex life for it. Super, super interesting. I appreciate the the personal anecdote. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about relationships and we might end up repeating ourselves here, but I think it's helpful specifically in relationships. You know, particularly I spent all day talking to, you know, younger people in their in their twenties and early thirties. And mm. when it comes to relationships, the the narrative is gloom and doom, right? Mm. Um, we're all we're all powerless because all men are dishonest. All women are crazy. Dating apps have ruined romance. Millennials aren't romantic anymore. No one can commit. Right. These these narratives, of course, we all have proof of them, I suppose. But we we love to grab onto the label um, and then we love to, you know, perhaps empower our own helplessness in the face of it because, yeah. you know, it, it helps center our identities within it. If, you know, talking about human behavior um, you know, designed to help us avoid discomfort. 
how do you think about distraction in, in the realm of those negative narratives that we have around um, relationships and, and dating apps? Like does, you know, uh, trying to escape that in the form of just continuously swiping or, you know, if we want to go hyperbole, men being unable to commit, do you think that's a function yeah. of our inability to sit in the discomfort that, hey, a relationship takes work? It's not always going to be bliss. Yeah. Those kinds of things. Do you, do, you, do you see any connection there? Well, the good news is that uh, for most people, unless you're looking for you know something that's, that's not mainstream, uh, you're just looking for one partner. Right, you don't have to marry all men or all women. Uh, you just yeah. need one person. <laughs> it doesn't matter if most people are yeah. scumbags. You just need one. And so yeah. I think there's a bit of laziness done, uh, a, a bit of laziness that happens when people complain about others without reflecting on themselves. And I think a big mistake, just like I told you, you know that that you, if you want to know uh, how what someone's values are, you see how they spend their time and how they spend their money. I want to see if, if this is one of your values, if finding a partner is one of your values, have you, do you have that time in your schedule, right? And do you know what you're really looking for? And I'll give you a great example. A buddy of mine, Sam, uh, I won't tell you his last name because I don't know if he wants the story repeated, but I'll, I'll tell you his first name. Uh, this guy uh, is incredibly thoughtful. And uh, he was a digital nomad. He was going all over the world. He's building a very successful company. He was living the life. And then one day he lo looked at his, his life. He said, you know what? I'm not getting any younger. I want a relationship and I want children someday. And if I want children, I need to get on this. I need to find the one. I need to find somebody that I can, I can build a family with because that's important to me. That's one of my values. And so uh, he started going on dates and he saw that it was, it was just fruitless. It, he was you know, spending a lot of time. It wasn't very effective. And so what did he do? He sat down and he, took, he opened his phone and he opened the notes app on his phone. And he sat down and he wrote, what do I want? Like, what do I want in a partner? Okay. And he said, you know, I, I want somebody who uh, wants to host dinner parties with me. I really love dinner parties. I want somebody who wants at least three kids because I want a big family. I want somebody who wants to live in a big city because I love New York. Uh, and he wrote down like 50 things about what he's looking for. The next date he goes on, he sits down with this young lady and he says, look, before we, before we get to know each other, uh, he said, maybe he says his name, but he says, you know, before we get to know each other, here's what I'm looking for. Right? I'm ready for marriage and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty serious about finding a good match. Here's what I'm looking for. And he says, 75% of the time, the young lady across the table would say, thanks very much. It was good knowing you, but I don't think it's a match. No, no harm done. No foul. Great. You know, we saved all that time. He could go do something else. About 25% of the time, they said, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I think I probably want, you know, most of this stuff is, is, is on track. That sounds great. And they had a nice date. And then one day, literally, it was, I think it was 30 days to the day that he he made this uh, this list, he sits down. He gives the young woman this uh, th this list of what he's looking for, and she says, "Huh, that's very interesting." Hands him back her phone with her list, and that's the woman he's married to, and they're expecting a kid here any day. I love that. It speaks to to honesty and intention, and just needing to find one person <laughs> on on the same page. And no and knowing what you want, yeah, I think yeah. the more like it's good to be choosy. It's good if you're serious about settling down. Like right, you know, I'm not right. saying you have to be serious about settling down, but I, I would. That's another big mistake, by the way, that I think uh, people are going to regret. Uh, I met my wife the first week of college, mm. and uh, people think that's crazy. Like, how could you meet somebody so young? You know, she was 18, I was 19 because I took a gap year. 
we should be telling 18, 19 year olds when they go to college, like that is prime time. There's nothing wrong. And I think the pendulum's kind of swinging the other way. Like when, when I was in school, it was nutso. We were the first people that like, people thought we were crazy that we got married right out of school. Uh, and then, then like, yeah, then nobody did it for a while. And I think now the pendulum's swinging the other way that people are saying like, Hey, you know what? It's fine. Like, I'm not saying you have to meet the right person young, but it is, there's nothing wrong with meeting the right person young. People think like, Oh, I got to like play the field and I got to see what's out there. You don't always, <laughs> like if you find the one, hold on to them. Don't let them go. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting topic. Cause I mean, there's, there's so much evidence and advice on both ends of the spectrum. Like you're young, go out and love yourself and learn yourself. And then there's, you know, advice on the other end, which says exactly that. So, I mean, you could find something to support both sides. Both are true. Both are great. Um, you know, I've but I think there's a, there is a formula though. I think, and, and I think the research, I don't, I don't know a ton about the research, but my guess is it would support it is that if you need to figure yourself out, wait, right? Like people, you, you want to marry someone else when you know yourself reasonably well. Like if there's a lot of shit you got to work on first, take care of that first, okay? But if you're kind of in a pretty good place, you don't have to have everything figured out. I mean, so we had no money, like literally no money. I, I think I had maybe a couple thousand dollars that I got, you know, for my bar mitzvah or something <laughs> saved up. That's, that's what I bought her engagement. I spent all my money on her engagement ring. Um, and that's all we had. So I didn't have my career figured out. I didn't have my life figured out. But I knew I knew my values from a very young age, and I knew I wanted to get married, and I knew I wanted to be a daddy someday. Uh, and so, in that respect, I had those big questions figured out. Um, other questions you should figure out is whether the person is messy. <laughs> That's one of those things you can't mm. fix about somebody, mm -hmm. or whether they're clean, or whether you're messy, or whether you're clean. Uh, religion, you're probably not going to change. You should figure that out. Whether you want kids or not, probably not going to change. You should probably figure that out spending habits, right? How people, you know, like that's, that's a, that's a values type issue. Again, you know, someone's values by how they spend their money and how they spend their time. When it comes to the person you're thinking about, about being together with for life, look at how they spend their money and the time. If your values don't align, you're going to have problems because people, these are the kind of stuff people don't tend to change over time. Yeah. And these are the things that are very practical. We, we sometimes, you know, lose sight of the, the trees for the forest and we start thinking about love languages and things like that, which of course are important attachment styles and all that kind of stuff. But there's a practical element of alignment that I think sometimes we, yeah. we, uh, we forget. Um, let's do one more. You, you, in the beginning, in the very beginning of our conversation, you were talking about like, uh, you know, sitting in discomfort and you mentioned a couple of feelings. You said the word loneliness. Loneliness, of course, is mm -hmm. um, a big topic. We could attack it from many different angles. I'm curious in the context of internal and external, you know, call it triggers, or just call it a feeling. Is loneliness a result of, you know, lack of external connection? Is it an is it an internal alignment issue, a, a lack of sense of self? What role does discomfort, or what role, sorry, what role does distraction play in allowing us to evolve through loneliness? Do we use distracting mm -hmm. mechanisms to cope for loneliness? Is there a way that we could find traction within loneliness so we could truly evolve through it? I'm curious your, your yeah. thoughts on the topic of loneliness in this context. Absolutely. So I think there's a big difference between being alone and being lonely. Uh, you can, I think it's healthy to be alone from time to time. Yeah. Like sometimes I go and I have dinner by myself. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, and, and I, sometimes I go and I, I just read a book yeah. uh, all by myself somewhere. And that's, that's fine. That's being alone. I think it's very good to be alone for extended periods of time. Loneliness is not healthy uh, because loneliness is a lack of of the feeling of understanding others and being understood yourself. That's what loneliness is. And that is a core human need. 
we you know we know that there's three psychological nutrients according to self determination theory the most widely studied theory of human motivation and flourishing says that every single one of us in order to be psychologically healthy we need competency autonomy and relatedness so relatedness when we don't have that connection to other people when we don't feel that our uh, that we can share things on our mind that we can help others with their pain something very big is missing. Mm. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be a spouse, but it needs to be somebody. It could be a sibling, it could be a good friend, but it needs to be another human being that you can confide in. The good news is you don't need many of these people. You just need at least one that you can yeah. you can count on. Somebody who who really has your back and who you can tell you can tell what matters to. Uh that that is very very important. And when we don't get it, we see a lot of bad things happening. Uh, we see psychological numbing, right? We see people drinking or doing drugs or playing video games or sex addiction or porn addiction. Uh, these things are not about feeling good. A, bi a big understand misunderstanding about addiction. People think that people do drugs because they feel good. That's not why people, that's why people do drugs. That's not why people get addicted to drugs, right? People do drugs once in a while uh, at parties because they feel good, but that doesn't mean they're addicted. Almost nobody who, do, believe it or not, uh, recreational drug use, the part, amount of people who actually get addicted is, is surprisingly small. The people who actually get addicted to these, these, these things, all kinds of things, uh, they're not looking to feel good. They're trying to no longer feel bad. Right. That's the hallmark of addiction. The solution becomes the problem, uh, and that's why you need more and more and more of it. Because the worse you know, the worse you feel, the more of, of the substance you need to escape reality. And this is the hallmark of distraction as well, right? Uh, you want to do one thing, but you can't, uh, or or don't, or aren't willing to, uh, because of this discomfort that you don't know how to escape any other way. And so, mm. uh, you, you you treat yourself essentially. You self medicate yourself with with these different distractions to get your mind off of that problem. And almost always, I mean, it's, 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 uh, I've never seen, and I've never talked to a clinician who's ever seen, uh, that there isn't some kind of comorbidity with addiction, right? People, nobody steps on a heroin needle and becomes addicted. There's always some kind of, 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 of secret they're keeping some kind of trauma they're struggling with that they haven't, that they don't feel there's anybody out there who cares. The good news is the good news is, you know what the most successful drug treatment program in history is it's not alcoholics anonymous alcoholics anonymous is about 12 percent effective which is very high 12 percent is actually pretty good but the number one treatment program ever is time time that when people age out of an addiction most people who who stop uh having an addictive disorder they don't stop completely they don't become abstinent they no longer are addicted. They have a glass of wine with dinner as opposed to having, you know, a, a, a case of 12 beers every night, right? They moderate their behavior. Why? Because that hole that needed filling, that emotional hole in their life got filled with something. Now they have a family. Now they have a job. They have people who care about them, who need them. And so they don't need to escape reality the, the way they did before. So back to where we started in the very, very beginning, step number one about mastering internal triggers. That's why it's step one. Because if you have these, these raging open sores in your psyche that need treatment around loneliness, fearfulness, anxiety, depression, uh, whatever the case might be, that has to be treated first because you're always going to be looking for some kind of escape, whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you're always going to find escape unless you know the source of what you're looking for. Mm. Mm. I love that. Yeah. And I, I think a lot about time. I, I, I remember, um, 
doing an episode on the idea of like time heals all wounds. And as much as I, I like that sentiment and, um, you know, the idea of, you know, maturing and evolving through time and looking back and being like, wow, I can't believe, you know, I used to struggle with that because now I don't so on and so forth. Um, I, I think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice by saying, oh, it's, you know, time did that for us where it's, it was our actions in the time that did it for us to give ourselves some credit for these things that we have overcome totally. the idea of exactly what you're talking about. The idea of the, our ability to sit in that discomfort, align our actions with our honesty and evolve through it. And then say, yes, our existence within the time gave us this ability. Um, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of my content and, and approach to mindfulness is, is equal parts very tough love, which I, I love about about you. Um, and then it's giving yourself a little bit of credit for acting on that. And I'd love to close in that sense. Um, this has been really great. I, I really appreciate your time and, you know, the the way that you've combined, you know, what would I re- refer to as very simple mindfulness, honesty, um, but very informed. And, um, you know, we've touched on, touched on some somewhat dark topics, addiction, loneliness, um, you know, regret. I'm curious, somewhat of an open-ended question to end on an optimistic note, but like what's what's got you excited about human nature and our ability to yeah. live happy lives in the future? I was going to close with like, what do you think about technology moving forward? But mm-hmm. perhaps, well, maybe if there's a silver lining in that you'd like to address, but like what's got you yeah. excited given all this realizations that we've had here? What makes you excited about yeah. being human? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. You're, you're absolutely right. I'm so glad you called that out. It's not the time itself that solves these problems. It's what we do with that time and what people who heal out of an addiction uh, do with that time is, is really simple. And this is what leaves me very hopeful uh, is they help people. They're needed. That's what fills the hole of loneliness is, you know, they do something to matter to someone else. That is your way out of these things. You know, when you have a family, the, the reason we know people who have kids are happier is because their kids need them right? The, the little baby needs to be taken care of. <laughs> and so you stop doing the drugs, you stop doing the self-destructive behavior because you are needed in this world. So the best thing you can do is to help others. And, and the fact that that is still part of the human condition, it's so simple, right? You don't have to go you know, fight wars and protest. You can just help your community. And, and we used to do this. I, I don't know why this isn't still part of our, our culture. We used to go to the local soup kitchen or, uh, you know, to, to help clean the park or to go uh, work with Habitat for Humanity. Like that type of stuff is super, super important. I think part of it is that when we became more secular, we stopped having these regular rituals in our life. And I think that's a real problem. I, 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 you know, again, I am secular. I don't believe in anything supernatural, but we, we secular people really miss out on not having those rituals, those routines that force us to take care of other people. Like when you go to a church or a synagogue or a mosque, there are people there who expect you to take care of them because they will take care of you. It's built into the religion. And we need to bring that back for everyone. Uh, and, And I think we certainly can. We just have to go out there and get it. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I appreciate your time. This is this is fantastic. Uh, I'm glad you ha- I had you on. You know, I don't do a whole lot of guests, but this uh, was certainly worth the time. And I'm excited to release this episode. Um, I where can people find your work? Anything you want to promote? Obviously, the book. I think sure. following this conversation, people will be eager to to pick it up. But you know, feel free to to <laughs> to, to promote yourself. I appreciate it. Yeah, so my my blog is at nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R-and-far.com. And my book is called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here, Near. I appreciate it.
All right, so that's it. I hope that was helpful. It's a longer episode. I don't do many guests, but for this, was really excited to release the episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. If you want more, I'd really encourage you to check out Nier's book. It's called Indistractable. You can find it everywhere. Or his earlier work, he wrote a book called Hooked as well. Such a powerful, practical approach to taking your power back. But that's it. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for supporting me. And until next episode, I'm out. <laughs>